Hi, this is Ari. Welcome to Roger's Music Tour, and thanks for having me on. Let's rock. Um, <laughs> let's rock. So, hey, guys, how, welcome back to Roger's Music Tour. I think uh, this is going to be one of the most special ones because this is the first time I've had somebody that goes head-to-head -head with me as far as music knowledge, so much so to where Ari Crane, our guest, probably knows more than me, which is um, a really uh, humbling admittance. But uh, I met him through the world of music and the world of business through a company that we'll talk about later on. But really, uh, when I met Ari, I was gravitated towards him because he's just a guy that is really excited and passionate and sure about the future of music. And, and, and ironically, if you zoom in on his socks, he's even wearing records on his socks, which probably had nothing to do with the fact that we're doing this today. And I have records on my shoes because uh, we live for music and we love it. And uh, we're in a little group of guys that listen to music on the regular. And uh, when Ari came, it was, it'd be like Michael Jordan coming to your pickup basketball game. He showed up with a... Um, a chest of vintage uh, vinyl records and we all got educated that night and I think that that just got me excited about having him on the show and about him really just sharing his journey from being a business owner from being a guy in the world of music but most importantly finding a way to go and couple your passions for your hobby as an adult with your day-to-day -day, which I think a lot of people run from so um, it's a big background from San Diego from Alaska he uh, he served in our country's military for that. We're, we're grateful. But um, among everything else, Ari is a storyteller, and today he's going to tell us his story about his love for music. So that's the that's the kickoff. How'd I do? That's awesome. Thanks, yeah? man. Cool. I really appreciate it, and it's it's been awesome to meet you in your circle and to really uh, to to get to hang out with guys that are are equally as passionate about music and about the future of music. And um and and you know my my story is is fairly unique. I, I know everybody's story is unique. And, uh, you know, my dad was, a my dad was a musician and a ghostwriter for years and years and has, uh, has over a hundred copywritten songs, uh, and wrote music for other people. At one point he had the, the state song for Alaska. What? Yeah. He, so <laughs> that is, I mean, that's a hell of a kickoff. Well, <laughs> yeah. He wrote a song about, uh, going home, Flying into Anchorage International Airport, boom, 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 really? boom, boom, yeah, on the 70s. So uh, before they called it Ted Stevens Airport, it was Anchorage International, and my dad had written the, the song for Anchorage International Airport. Uh, my family, my grandparents were both teachers, and they hem homesteaded to the territory of Alaska in the 50s, where they were giving uh, free land away uh, for, for uh, people homesteading, and they really needed educators. Uh, physicians and other people, uh, key key importance up there. So, my grandparents went um, to to go teach to go teach the uh, elementary, junior, high systems, and we're uh, forty plus forty year teachers in the Kenai Peninsula and in Anchorage. Wow. So, yeah. So, um, so to fast forward to you entering the world, <laughs> you know, I mean, you grew up a kid again in, in Alaska, which just proves that you know music can hit us everywhere, whether it's in Texas, Alaska, or or anywhere. But so you were born there. And what was your first, you know, kind of experience when, you know, one of my favorite quotes is some people hear music and the lucky yeah. ones feel it. Guys like us, we feel music on a daily basis. My, my dad, he constantly had his guitar and was picking his Gibson J series. So my dad and his hollow body guitar was always, you know, uh, we were on the family homestead uh, right behind what's now the Anchorage Zoo and um, right off O'Malley Road. And uh, my dad was, was always playing music and, you know, strumming his guitar and writing music. So... Uh, that, that's what I grew up with, and it didn't really resonate with me until I joined the military. You know, I, I didn't have to join the Army, and nobody else in my family had ever joined the military. And uh, my family really wanted me to uh, take a different route, but I decided to, to choose my own path. And, uh, and that was a really hard choice. You know, it was my mom's family. They're from San Diego, so I kind of grew up between bouncing between Alaska and San Diego, um, Southern California and uh, Kenai Peninsula, Alaska. So pretty extreme differences. Yeah, huge differences. You yeah. know, you can you're skiing or cross country skiing one moment, and then you're jet skiing the next moment. So wow. yeah, two totally totally different. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but 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 back with in the, in the world of like mainstream music again, because like your yeah. your your vocab and music is it's it's literally it's intimidating, and and I, <laughs> I feel like I'm I'm 43 and I I don't think I've ever met anybody that trumps me and I remember eventually going from wanting to stand next to you to kind of sitting down and, and, and listening to you because I learned so much but at what age did you hear I'm not going to say secular mainstream music but mm -hmm. I'm assuming that radio stations in Alaska are just as prevalent as they are here but maybe not I mean was it something where you heard your first Guns N' Roses song as a kid or your first 
Louis Armstrong song. What, no. what, what was it? No, when I was a kid, um, we I moved away from Alaska when I was when I was like five, and then I moved back for high school. So we moved. Uh, my dad actually moved us to San Diego, and when I was in high school, I went to Scripps Ranch High School, and that was uh, uh, in ninety two, ninety three when they first opened Scripps Ranch. It was also the heyday of a big club down there called the Soma and the Casbah, and the Soma had an all age venue. And uh, a lot of the sub pop and man's ruin artists would uh, would even debut like there. just even that yeah. he just throws that in there sub pop and man's ruin what does that even mean so sub pop is like the first Nirvana I saw uh, I saw Mud Honey live in concert Tad uh, Caius Lucifer Primus before they were even a big deal I saw Smashing Pumpkins when Billy Corgan still had hair mm. um, I saw everybody from No Doubt to Hole to um, you name it three eleven were you uh, I was like. I was like 12, 13. My dad would drop me off at the all-age venue and give me 20 bucks and, and a quarter and say it was like 10 bucks to get in and then I could buy a couple sodas. And then I had a quarter for the payphone afterwards, give him a call and he'd come pick me up. No way. Yeah. So, so you did this. And again, it's almost like the people that grew up watching Grateful Dead or watching the band or watching Janis Joplin. It kind of was just in their backyard. So you did this. And then did you realize as a 12-year-old, you're connecting with the music uh, like in a kind of unique way that it's not really meant for a 12 year old. Yeah, yeah, it was it was unusual since my dad was a musician and mentioning these yeah. names that are Queens of the Stone Age and Smashing Pumpkins and Primus and Hole. And this is before Kurt Cobain and Courtney Love, Courtney Love had a yeah. a love affair. But as a 12 year old, I mean, you had to be the odd man out where you actually appreciate the music and not just the rebellious, <laughs> you know, getting away from mom and dad. No, it was just dad. It was dad and myself. So. You know, um, I, I saw uh, Courtney Love early on. I, I wasn't a huge fan of Hole, but uh, I saw, saw her live in concert, and uh, that was kind of the, th that was it for me. I mean, just live music in general. You know, that was, uh, um, I, it just, it ignited a passion, and, uh, and, and also later on in the military, you know, what got me into uh, vinyl record collecting was, you know, it was uh, lunch break. I was in my uniform, and I was a, uh, I was, I started out enlisted as a private first class, um, and I got a, uh, a scholarship, green and gold scholarship, from Major General Tom Metz at Fort Riley in uh, 2002. And so I went to uh, Kansas State for two years uh, in Army ROTC, commissioned as a lieutenant. Hmm. So uh, 2005, I'm in Seattle, Washington, stationed in Bothell, Washington, and uh, went to a garage sale. They had a stack of like 50, 60 records, and uh, the gal, the lady just gave them to me and I, I didn't know anything about collecting or vinyl records at that time. I knew about music and artists, but not, not records themselves, but that really ignited my passion for different labels. And, uh, and for, you know, I, I've gone down so many different rabbit holes from, you know, boogie woogie piano jazz to, to bebop and post bop and, uh, different types of blues and the, the pioneers of music, gospel music, uh, funk, soul, R and B, uh, Northern Soul, those 45s in, in you know north of London, um, some of the smashers up there, absolute dance hits. I have friends that collect uh, Studio One reggae. Uh, I collect personally early ska music, pioneers, godfathers of reggae, and um, it, it's led me down so many different avenues that it, it's phenomenal. I love psych. I love psych and British psych and. You so know, it, it's, it, again, yeah. it's, it's, it's unfair. I mean, especially <laughs> if you, you put a, a drink in our hands, and it, it honestly, it's a religious experience. So you're. You're in Seattle to kind of paint the picture, to tell the story. You're in the you're in Seattle. You're yeah. on a break. You got some cash in your in your pocket, or some 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 coins in your pocket. You go and buy it. You remember the first record that you actually bought as an no, adult? No, no, which mean, is kind of abnormal. So you're in your 20s. You're 25 years old, and you yeah. buy your first record. Yeah, it's like it's like I didn't even. I mean, it was a garage sale, and she practically gave me 50, 60 records for you know. That's that's where I really also at the same time discovered the economics. I was looking for a side hustle. And so I started doing record shows. You know, now that's a big leap. Well, hey, I found 50 records and I'm doing record shows. But I found 50 records. I listened. You know, I didn't have a turntable. I think I went to the Goodwill and I bought a turntable for like a buck. And it was like literally like a dollar turntable with two tape decks. And I said, uh, does it come with any speakers? And they said, well, we have one speaker. So I had a dollar turntable and like maybe five bucks and 50 records. That was, I had $6 invested. It wasn't an investment. It was a, it was just a, a curiosity at that point. Do you remember one of the records out of the 50? I, I honestly don't because I mean, it was, it was so early on Rogers. I, I don't remember what any of the titles were. I just remember when I was done, I wasn't a collector. And so I took them to a local record shop, right? Um, a block off of uh, the UW campus campus. 
uh, right, you know, right off the University of Washington camp- campus. And uh, she said, are you here to sell? And I said, well, I was just going to, I mean, I was thinking to myself, I was just going to give them to her and go pick some more out. And, you know, um, and I said, sell, I can do that. And sure. So I, I remember how much I left there with. I left there with 257 bucks. Mm. So going from, six, you know, $5 invested to 257 I said, well, what if I knew what I was doing? Mm. You know, I could, I could be a little dangerous learn about music and also find my little side hustle. So that's exactly what happened. And again, this is in, when was this the early two thousands? Yes. Like 2005, I think 2005. So we're recording this in June of 2023 where to kind of, <laughs> well, I'm saying just to kind of cheat the, the podcast and the story. I think uh, 2022 was the first year since 1988 that vinyl sold more than CDs. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, every article from wall street journal to, you know, Rolling Stone magazine vinyls are back and it's, it's, it's here to stay. But you were a solid 20 years ahead of the curve. Yeah, I mean, for me, analog resonated as it does on a different frequency. I mean, it resonated. It was a much purer sound, a sound that I believed. Mm-hmm. You know, um, since then, I've, I've gone down. Oh, that's awesome, man. <laughs> Which one? The, uh, oh, wow. What? The Rodriguez. That is incredible. Oh, yeah. Sugar Man? Yeah. Sh- oh, man. Yeah. Sorry. We got sidetracked. Had, yeah. Sorry about that. No, I no. Was, like, squirrel. Yeah, squirrel. But, uh, no, this- so, I, can't, I can't I can't sit in here by myself too long because I I literally will I and again part of being music people I can justify it I have like conversations with some of these pieces and not literally out loud sometimes I do but it's just like I can remember the first time I heard wow you know searching for Sugar Man or you probably the first time you heard just a song that just set something off and, and it just made you feel alive differently and, and that's exactly what I was talking about is since then I've learned the science behind it you know in our our inner ear interprets nature in an analog analog format and you know it, it hits our thalamus sends a signal to our hypothalamus and releases dopamine so that's exactly why you feel the pleasure and and why i work with an organization called amta it's the american music therapy association mm. they have 72 years of clinical trials and studies since 1950 they were founded to help us uh, soldiers with shell that were shell-shocked had pt what's now known as ptsd or post or traumatic stresses or traumatic stress disorders. Mm. And, um, you know, they found that, uh, analog music had a very healing effect. And since then they've had multiple, multiple clinical studies and they've actually been able to, they can, they can tell you the exact science behind it. So that, that led me to another passion that was helping people with analog sound. Wow. So even educating our audience, like explain to me, what is analog sound? There's all there's there's a lot. I mean, like in the world of records and, and collecting, there's a lot of yeah. overwhelming terms that like there I'm is. almost inf- afraid yeah. to ask what it is because people just think simple. that I know. So give give us a yeah. rundown. It's wavelengths versus blocks. So digital frequencies come out in blocks. Analog really comes through in waves, just like the song says. Um, you know, and it travels on different frequencies. Um, Amta has identified two major frequencies. Uh, one I shared with you and gave, you know shared a record. Is the sleep frequency four hundred for daughter four hundred and thirty two hertz is the sleep frequency, and you know they've had tremendous clinical uh, success with helping people with uh, severe sleep disorders with at, at four hundred and thirty two hertz. How do you know this stuff? It's just just looking it up and having and just you know really wanting to to help, but also being passionate about it. And you know just uh, like you said, there's SoundCloud and Spotify channels where you can look up music at four hundred and thirty two hertz on the sleep frequency. There's also, you know, they're, they're digital, but if you play an analog record, like uh, my favorite is uh, Mozart's Jupiter Symphony 41. Uh, if you can play, if you can find a nice analog copy, copy of Mozart's Jupiter Symphony 41, it's tremendous. It'll put you to sleep in two minutes. Wow. So uh, back to the evolution of music and the tangible part of it. And, you know, I, I've got all sorts of thoughts on it where, you know, COVID for me was the first time where I was like, okay, what I've been doing my whole life, I'm, I, it's cool. Or it's accepted, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I think you go on this journey for maybe 15 or 17 years where are you flipping records, going to record shows, and it's kind of the same people you know, every day, every weekend, all of a sudden it's like, boom, a new audience just emerges? No, I mean, I, I've been doing record shows all around the U.S. for, for years just as a hobbyist, you know, to build my personal collection. And then, you know, it was like a, like a little side hustle, but one that was, you know, real tiny. So... Um, but it, it really was able to to build my collection. At one point, I had you know fifty seven thousand records. How many? Fifty seven thousand <laughs> records. Where? Well, I, I've had you know I um, uh, I was at Maud Gallery. I had Kapow Records in Kansas City at eighteen oh nine McGee, where Maud Gallery's at now. Uh, 
I'm friends with Brian Owsley, the owner of Maud, and I opened, uh, I lived there with him for a bit and opened Kapow Records and had 57,000 records in the, in the back warehouse that about you five feet from my bed. Yeah. How did, I mean, like, was it just over the course of time you just, people would find you or you would find them? That was a great question. Uh, Ron Rooks had the record exchange in Kansas City, and Ron Rooks unfortunately passed away um, from a uh, chicken wing. And, um, what? Yeah. Choked? Yeah, real bad. Holy um, crap. Yeah, nice guy. And uh, his entire store um, was was closed down. And at the time, I was uh, an officer in the military in Seattle. So I, I took a plane flight from Seattle to Kansas City to go to the, um, the first cell where they had 50% off the whole store and picked up, like, my 10-inch uh, Bill Haley in the comments, uh, their, their first record, like the first, you know, rock real 10-inch rock. Yeah, yeah, the first rock and roll smasher. Um, wow and uh full album and then uh you know pick up i picked up a mead lux lewis uh and his boogie woogie piano that turned out on the flight to be autographed by mead lux lewis uh found some other pieces that that really got me really excited and then i i had uh, a few years later i actually moved to kansas city and uh, when i moved there they had were... no coincidence to what the, to the store no not at all and um it, it was actually to work for ecolab as a uh as a water tester, kind of a, a chemical hydrologist and, and water testing and water cells and designing closed and open loop systems and all that stuff, that boring stuff that has to do with testing water and making not drinkable water, but process water for different buildings and systems. Took care of the whole uh, Kansas City, all the municipal and, and government buildings uh, was their main water, their main water guy. Tested all their water and and then you bought 57,000 records. <laughs> no, I, uh, I just, I made friends in that area and, and we were right behind one of the best outdoor music venues in Kansas city, which is uh, Casey grinders. Uh, our friend stretch owns uh, grinders and has done a, a ton with, um, with like Guar and a whole bunch of other bands. Guar. Oh my yeah, God. He designed the barbecue sauce for Guar called Guar. They had Gu- a Guarbecue party. Oh my God. So <laughs> Guar. Dude, fun fact, I was on Jerry Springer, which is a whole other story. What? And I remember the episode that filmed before I took my mom, as a, it, which I was not on as a, as a panelist. I ended up going on, which is a whole other story. Google it. But Gore was on right before us. And so I remember, I remember like the area we were waiting on, all of a sudden these guys, weren't, didn't they dress like, not dinosaurs. Dave but, Rocky. No, they dressed like they were al- they're aliens um, bent on world domination. Yes. And then I remember it was just like, Gore, just screaming. <laughs> So you, you met them in a more organic sense, and they had barbecue sauce. Yeah, yeah. So, but anyway, what led you to 57,000 records? So Ron Rooks, they, they were still selling his collection uh, a couple of few years after he had passed, and they moved everything down to the West Bottoms, and I think they still had over a million records at that point. So, and it was a dollar a record, and I, I went down and I was picking out $200, $300 records for a buck a piece wow. and spent thousands of dollars there on crazy stuff. Uh, so that netted me like 4,000 records or 4,700 records. And then when that whole round was done, a couple of few months later, they said, hey, we have to get everything out of here. Final last sell. Uh, come and make us a deal. So they had palletized the remainder of the records. And I went and bought all the pallets that were left. And, uh, and also all the, uh, the bins, that you, the wooden bins to flip through. Sold all those to Chad Cassum at uh, Acoustic Sounds. He owns uh, House of Heavenly Vi- uh, Blues in Salina, Kansas, and Acoustic Sounds, one of the largest uh, uh, music pressers in the uh, U.S. Wow. Were you married at the time? No, I was not married at the time. I don't think that would fly. When when did you meet your wife? (laughs) I met my wife in Kansas City in uh, 2009. And then uh, what was the first time you told her you had 57,000 records? Oh, she knew because I was living living in the warehouse, and they were like 10 feet from my bed. So... So, I mean, I, I slept in the back of a four or 5,000 square foot warehouse. My buddy Brian and I were trying to create something awesome. Brian really had, has created something amazing um, with, uh, with Maud Gallery. I think it was voted the best gallery in Kansas City like two, three years in a row. And, and then what happened? I mean, how did, how did you go and unload 57,000 pieces? I sold, uh, I, I was made an offer, um, and I really wanted to concentrate my collection. It wasn't a collection at that point. It was just rando records that I had bought at this, uh, you know, at this cell. But it was awesome because, I mean, it, it led to meeting a ton of great people. Like I've, uh, you know, met P-Funk and been to a lot of their concerts in the back of Grinders and 
just uh, a lot of the artists that would come through there, you know, would come over and come shopping in the record store. And, um, you know, I had some fun little in-store events uh, where I'd, I'd have, uh, before record store day, I would have um, a record store day hmm. or, you know, like a record show in there and have, you know, eight, ten friends set up tables and we'd, uh, we'd uh, uh, hawk records. Again, uh, this is a solid ten years before the resurgence, right? Where, I, you know, I, I know um, some of our friends here in Dallas at Josie Records, I remember when they first opened, I was like, that's so crazy that this is potentially coming back. And that was still that was six or seven years ago. So, so go back to the, to the journey of Ari and, and what led you to, to Heritage and how, how we kind of met. But I know that your, your background is not just in the world of, uh, of music. So what were you doing along the, the same lines after you, you, know, after you were, were done with the, the military and um, decided to go and pursue different, d- different uh, ventures? Yeah, so my first job out of the military is I think I was the youngest store manager at Sears Holding Corporation. I think it was uh, 26 and went through the um, accelerated management training program with Kmart and Sears. And ended up running my own uh, oh, $56 million store in Charles City, Iowa. We were the second largest employer in uh, Northeast Iowa. Oh, my God. Yeah. Besides like a big uh, um, food mill or whatever. Which, by the way, has meal. nothing directly to do with music. Zero. But at that time, I had already, I had already been knee-deep in collecting at that point. And um, I'd already made a ton of friends, especially... I had a I have a really sick uh, bop jazz collection like early Blue Note prestige dial debut Riverside bop jazz bebop yeah so this is a whole other genre again like I'm yeah. over here taking notes I'm gonna watch this, this no no be- bebop is like early Miles Davis Hank Mobley uh, Thelonious Monk Sonny Rollins uh, one of my favorites um, Lee Morgan so um, you know just really early bebop jazz you know you're looking at you know really Charlie Parker I think is is a good argument that Charlie was one of the one of the uh, fathers of Bop, you know, 1948, and uh, uh, early on Dizzy Gillespie, which uh, I have early Dizzy stuff from uh, 1946 on a Victory disc. Mm. Do you know what the Victory no. disc is? I'm looking it's for my 16... Dizzy Gillespie. I have an autograph of him in here somewhere. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, what is a Victory disc? A Victory disc is uh, was played on the USO radio stations on the military radio stations uh, during and after World War II. And a Victory Disc is a 16, um, it's a 16 inch record. It's a huge record. It requires a, a special turntable to, you have to have a special turntable to play it on. Um, and it was, it was a government record played on a government record station. And that's where you have the first recording of uh, Dizzy Gillespie. Oh my God. Yeah. How, how many different genres of music do you think that you know of? Oh, I, I don't know. Um, I mean, I collect classical, I collect blues. So, okay, so again, the mind of a collector here. So for me, I collect different musicians. Like if there's a Don Henley piece, I got to buy it. If there's a Bob Seger piece of David Ruffin, but you collect genres of music. I collect collect labels, and and those labels have led me to different genres. So like, like, give me an example of a label. Like Columbia. So you know, Columbia can have everything from, from jazz to psych rock to classical. So... You know, and everything in between. Columbia, you get, you know, blues, you get Robert Johnson, you get, I mean, you get so many different artists on that label. So I just started collecting labels and specifically labels from certain eras. And so, like all 1950s Columbia 33s, that's a big list. Like, if I want all the six eyes, um, if I want all the six eye Columbias or all the maroon label or, or turquoise label capital, you know, from the fifties. Again, this y'all, he's speaking a language that like, you gotta <laughs> seriously. I mean, like even, even for me, like I, I, I'm, I admittedly yeah. don't know what you know about that world of music. So oh, yeah. what does that mean? Six eyes, red label. What, no, what is... no, sure. So, um, the early Columbia records, the, uh, the fifties, it was a solid maroon label. Then they switched to a label that was red with, with six little, uh, black eyes on the right and left hand side of the label. So that's called a six eye label. And then they had a, a two I label after that, or a Columbia 360 stereo, uh, which was oh. a, the 60s transition label. Um, so it's it's really just it, that's what really how I developed my knowledge of music and the artist was really learning and studying the labels. Wow! And so again, it, it, like, how do you set governors on this? Because the difference between you and a lot of other collectors What's, that are emotional, like a, I'm saying, how do you know I, what? I don't know, governor. Uh, how do I know, Governor? Yeah, no. but I'm but I'm serious. Like it's it's emotional purchasers are the best kind of purchasers for a seller. No, and, literally, I don't know governors. I I don't have any governors on. There's no there's no governors. I just I just go for it, and I just uh, I I look like on your wall, and I see the Rodriguez autograph, and I, I I'm like it's like I, I uh, a moth to a, a moth to a flame. Yeah. 
super yeah. ADD about everything and Same. just super passionate. So I'm just like, okay, let's go. I'm trying to find the busy Gillespie piece. I know it's in a metallic frame. Um, we'll find it before we go. Um, I have some cool dizzy story. I have a cool, really cool dizzy story. Did you ever meet him? No, I never met him. But after he passed, um, I know he had a place in uh, South Carolina. Huh. And um, my friend Mike Saffron had Saffron's Antiques in Columbia, South Carolina, and had gone to Dizzy's estate sale. And I bought some pieces from Mike um, Saffron. And uh, one of them was Dizzy's. I have his Downbeat uh, Award, Dizzy's Downbeat uh, Globe Award, which is kind of cool. No way. I, lo- <laughs> I love stuff like that. Yeah. Um, most expensive piece you've ever purchased? Vine, Ooh. like record. And, and you don't have to give us an exact amount. Give us a, a range. Ooh. Uh, I bought a Leaf Town Growers of Mushroom first press on Decca. It was a UK. It's one of the rarest psychedelic rock records. Leaf Hound Growers of Mushroom. You could look that up. It's a <laughs> it's a UK Decca. I just sold one. What does that even mean? What, what is a UK Decca? So Decca is the label. UK is the country that it was pressed in. Fair. So um, the UK Decca's for certain artists like that, like like uh, Leaf Hound. It's been reissued. But the UK deck is almost nearly impossible to find in decent shape. I paid sixty five hundred bucks for it. Wow! But that was years ago, before I met my wife. What do you think that could sell for now? I just sold one. Oh, fair. Yeah, um, they go right now. They're like ten to twelve k. Wow! If you can find one. Wow! And so, do you, do you find yourself? It's like I, I'm not allowed to go to puppy puppy mills, or you know, cause I'll, <laughs> I'll leave with a, a car full of puppies. Do you, do you feel like you're the same way? Like you you know your limits, right? And again, it's it's uh, especially with the danger of a credit card is it's I not don't. real money. I don't. Okay. No, unfortunately, I don't. In fact, uh, this is a great segue to uh, to to your most recent venture. Oh uh, yeah. Um, so I've I've been working with all four companies that are the first four companies in the vinyl record encapsulation space. Mm. Wow. And um, so I've been dipping into my personal archives and uh, uh, pulling out all the sealed records or records are that are so historically important. I think that they the sound should be preserved. And, uh, you know, I've, I've really, uh, conducted the prospectus on all four companies yeah. and, and really have uh, pros and pros for all four companies, why I would choose the different f- companies and the reasons. And I think it's really exciting right now to be in the space. Like, yeah. Really exciting. Yeah. And I feel like we skipped a little part, which I, I, pr- I appreciate the plug for tuned in grading, which is, is actually how I met Ari, but even with records, right. And something that you, you made your analogy with analog and, you know, how you explain it, like yeah. super high level. What I started telling people, because I, I've been a record guy since I was three years old. I, my parents first played Peter Pan following the leader. And I remember looking at that and I was, I have very bad OCD and ADD and I'm obviously all over the place. But I remember locking in and being like, what is that? How's their sound coming from it? And just that feel of actually touching it to, to, to kind of land the plane on it. What I tell people now is you can go and listen to your favorite song. Let's say it's uh, whatever. My Girl by the Temptations. And you can listen to it on the radio. It's My Girl by the Temptations. Or you can listen to it on a record. And I make the analogy to like a cookie where maybe your grandma, your your uncle, somebody made the world's best cookies and you remember that taste when you were a kid. And it's that richness, that soul, that soulful taste. And then you can go to 7-Eleven and buy a cookie still too. That's streaming music. And I feel like music on a record, on a, on a, on a record player, it's an experience and it's more enriching and you got to touch it and taste it and feel it much like a you know, a homemade cookie. And, and I feel like that's been such a smaller group of people that all of a sudden, what do you think it was? Why do you think records all of a sudden became such a big thing? Was it Taylor Swift? Was it Childish Gambino? Was it Ari Crane? What was the reason that all of a sudden these things were everywhere again, so much so to where they're selling them at Target? I, I think that, uh, that you know, phenomenal, uh, uh, more passion and excitement and people like you and uh, people that are, are really passionate about the music and the music, especially in an analog format, you know, where, where, like I said, it really, it resonates more so than the digital. Uh, and, and I gave the reasons why. And I think that, um, that, that as the more science that we know behind this, um, the, the more we are, the greater our understanding. Uh, and, you know, we really know that, that it really truly is healing when you hear it in an analog format versus a digital. Uh, and the fact that, you know, I, like I tell people, um, what they really should have done is they should have made it a bump where you have, okay, music industry, uh, just 1% is all I ask for. Just 1%. Free idea. Really nice free idea. You know how they had that, the tap and bump and you may have a download and you pay however much for the download? 
wouldn't it have been easy if I was just to bump someone else's phone and they can get that same download for half the price? Hmm. Wouldn't that be great? Hmm. It'd be so easy. Just bump. Oh, who is that? Who's that artist? Oh, it's uh, whomever, you know, and then bump. Now you have it for half the price. So you really get two sales for one. Hmm. So I, I think that word of mouth and then also what really has made it is the um, something that's tangible. You can't resell a digital song. A record, when I get tired with it, if I choose to sell it, it's physically and tangibly worth, it, it's a physical asset. And, and I think that that excites a bunch of different group groups of people. You know, you have investors, collectors, um, something that's a physical, tangible asset, something you can get pleasure and enjoyment out of. But I can also, when I'm done, I can go and get get more money than what I paid for it, if you know what you're doing. Mm. So to me, that's where the knowledge is. I look at myself like I'm a, I'm a stock trader for alternative investments. Whoa. I try to push. I try to Love put, that. I try to put myself to be the very tip of the spear, to really know what I'm looking at. And I'm, I'm a dangerous man. I can go into any estate sale, antique store, record store even, since mu- music is so geographical, Rogers. I can go into a store in, um, in the middle of Illinois. And, I can go, and the store is a Beatles store. And I can go in and buy a four or $500 Chet Baker first pressing Riverside jazz record in mint condition for five dollars <laughs> it's true yeah because they can't give away jazz in that store and same thing with with you know rock stores where i go to certain places and i'll go to a hip-hop store and i'll buy a psych record for 10 bucks i'll buy a 500 600 psychedelic rock record for 10 bucks it they can't give it away it's so geographical so you think we're creating a market then? I mean, there's a, there's a market. It's like professional Easter egg hunters. Absolutely, no, yeah. absolutely. I you know, and, and there's there's entire people that earn their careers now off off blogs and vlogs where they go out and pick and find stuff. You know, look at American Pickers and look at the 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 um, uh, Pawn Stars and the uh, the Storage Wars and all these shows on TV that and, and I've pitched a show too to Hint Media in Kansas City. I I pitched a show called uh, Vinyl Hunters. And it was me and my buddy Rico going around looking for the world's rarest records. I love that. On, on an absolute budget. And we filmed an incredible sizzle reel and it got passed around and the time just wasn't right. Wow. But I think the timing's, the timing's getting back there. Yeah. Didn't you yeah. just film an episode of Pawn Stars? No, I didn't. Yeah. I was background fodder. I was in the background walking around with your encapsulated records. Oh, nice. Thanks. Yeah. Very cool. So right up next to Chumley, who you had on your on your uh, yeah. your show, and uh, Rick and everyone else. Yeah. Right there by Big Hoss. Um, and just exciting to see um, the buzz and the people that were there and yeah. just... Hopefully, I'll be in the background with uh, tuning grading uh, and other encapsulated Look records. Look at this guy. Uh, they filmed, we filmed an episode here, which is why that piece is not hung up. They took it off the wall, and they, they tried to buy it, and I was, it, was a, it was a whole lot of fun. But even with that, it was cool that they're doing, they're doing uh, episodes targeted toward music memorabilia. So, so back That's to the awesome. music memorabilia world and how you're a voice for Heritage Auctions, which is the greatest auction house in the entire world. They've sold everything from Mickey Mantle's rookie card. Yeah. to some places, you know, I have a lot of pieces in here that I got from Heritage. So what, what is that like, again, as a fan, but also as a business guy, as an entrepreneur, someone who's exited companies, has done really well. Like even today, he texts me a photo. I'm a huge Eagles fan, obviously. And you got an Eagles piece. What is that like to have to not get attached to something that maybe is for sale and someone else is expecting to get the money and you can't necessarily buy it? You know, it, it's, it's exciting. Um, it's really exciting to, you know, you, you have the top one-tenth of one percent of the best pieces in the world that come through Heritage. Um, lar- like you said, largest auction house in the U.S., largest collectibles auction house in the world. And, uh, you know, right now, I, it's my pleasure to introduce brand new technology. That Mickey Mantle card you're talking about, you know, before it was encapsulated, the most it would sell for it at these card shows, I think was like 150 or 175000 And last year, Heritage sold it for $12.6 million. It blows my mind to be to to think that I could be on the cutting edge of brand new technology working with all four companies that are are introducing something so new and multiple other companies major companies in this industry in the slabbing and encapsulation industry are calling me now that are saying hey we're going to get you know involved in this space Mm. what are your recommendations and I'm totally a neutral party I'm like "Eh, I I can't share anything you know with you this is 
my research and, you know, just trying to be completely neutral and not play favorites in any way. Yeah. But I definitely have favorites for different reasons for the pros for all four companies. Yeah. At what point do you think it goes too far? Right. And and he's talking, y'all that are not educated in the world of like collectibles and encapsulations. Like, you know, I remember when I was a kid and I still do collected sports cards. Right. And all of a sudden Beckett starts. Imagine putting a plastic slab over a card, making sure it's protected and it's sealed forever. You you know what the records? I I really advocate only three major, well four major things with records, Rogers, and that are that those are, you know, I had one dealer try to tell me we had a 1967 Velvet Underground and Nico true first pressing, pre lawsuit has a torso uh, hanging upside down on the back cover, and you know they they had to airbrush it out first. They put a sticker over it, and I had a guy I, we just sold a sealed original. And a dealer at the uh, Austin, the largest record show in the U.S., the Austin show, tell me, oh, I would open that. And I said, no, you wouldn't. You would lose 80% of the value of that record as soon as you open the sleeve. So you would, pl- you would play a reissue or you'd play not that copy, not the sealed copy, right? Mm. So what makes sense to me are sealed historical pieces, true first pressings that are sealed that you would never open. Also acetates, test pressings. And, uh, and also very historically important records. Like I have a Linda Hoyle pieces of me and they only made 300 of those records. And I have probably the best copy on the planet. I paid a ton of money for it. And I really want that, you know, they didn't come sealed. It's on a UK vertigo label. And, uh, they only, they only made 300 of them. So, uh, you know, I, I really wanted to take the, what I think is the, the best mintiest copy on the planet and preserve it for future generations. But I didn't want to lose the music. So I had the sound preserved as an NFT and transferred onto the uh, onto the actual hard case on the outside. They put a barcode, and I have the code that to put that in my crypto wallet or access that. Um, so, you know, that's what makes sense to me is historically important acetates, test pressings, and sealed first pressings. Everything else, I think, if you start encapsulating everything, I think it's gonna, I think it's gonna, um, it, it's gonna diminish overall because you know you're gonna have a lot of, uh, you know. Why, why, why spend $50 or $100 for a case and there's a $10 record in there? It doesn't make sense to me. Well, the same reason that I have, let me find one in here that most people can't justify, but I've got some stuff in here. I mean, I have Hanson. I have um, stuff that maybe people don't consider to be real. Weird Al. I have multiple Weird Al pieces because I, I love, love Weird Al. Al. The frame might be worth more than the photo, but for me as a collector, it's not for sale. And I think that's what people can go and justify getting something you know, encapsulated from an artist that everyone else is be like, why do you have Millie Vanilli? I was like, it's not Millie Vanilli. This is the actual voice behind Millie Vanilli. That's it's like, <laughs> but I'm saying that's where the, that's where the collectors in us right. that you yeah. can justify the yeah. expense because you're not doing this to sell something. Yeah. the investment is in your sanity and, 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 yeah. and your, your being. Okay. Uh, as we start to kind of get to the end of the, the music, uh, part of the question, something I do when I get to ask the people that are true musicians on here, which you are, but you're, you're, uh, maybe your instrument is your brain or your, your storytelling ability versus just being able to be a singer. But I get to ask people that are on this, like, what does music actually mean to you? It means love. Music is, music is, um, you know, everybody can, we all have different experiences and we all come from different backgrounds. But for me, music is, it's so, it's passion and love and it's geography. It's, it's, you know, these pressing plants, especially if you know the history, the 40s, 50s, and going back to even segregated record stores. These are places where music wasn't traveling more than one or two states away, and it was being separated for the masses. You know, and, and to me, I look at all that history, and the, it's the history of us. And I, I really see how far we've come, and I also see a lot of love and passion. So, you know, people may or may not like the music or the artist, but... I have to respect the passion in the game and also, you know, just the, uh, the regionality of the, of the sound mm. itself and how that traveled. I think it's all important and, you know, different sounds travel to different places and you spread love is what you do. Man, I'll tell you what, uh, you're stuck on an island. You're only allowed one song forever mm. and it's not going to be annoying. It's not going to be played on loop, but you're mm. allowed one song. What's the song? Ooh, that is and really why? tough. So... Linda Hoyle, Pieces of Me. <laughs> really? Yeah. The one that you have, you have one of her 300 records ever, the most pristine one? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, it, why? I get goosebumps right I have goosebumps right now talking about it. I heard um, it starts uh, into the volcano I go. 
And, um, you know, that's, that's been my life. You just jump in the volcano. Mm. Um, and, uh, there's, there's, you know, pieces of this and bits of that, but you know, it's, uh, it's super powerful. It really is. And I heard that and there's only 300 made and she just recently made another album. But, um, a lot of people don't know that at all or how powerful that song is, but she really shows her chops and that entire album is everything from psychedelic rock to blues and everything in between and it is really freaking good wow. so that was that would be my one is um it, it's actually playing in my head right now uh over it's on repeat and um everybody i play that for they're they're just like where has she been my whole life how did you discover who she was uh, a consignment came in and uh, the consignment had two of the 300 copies. <laughs> no way. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And it had her first album from her band Affinity, also UK Vertigo. They made more copies than 300 on, on, for the band Affinity. But that band was only together for about a year, year and a half. They broke up. And then Linda Hoyle uh, in 1971, um, Affinity came out in 1970. 71 was her self-titled debut and her only record uh, until recently. And um, what a powerhouse. Mm-hmm. I mean, honestly, if she would have another record, we could be talking about first ballot Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Wow. Okay. Well, now that you open that up, yeah. most overrated musician ever. And it's got to be somebody that is a little bit more mainstream that maybe... Rod lo- Stewart. Overrated. Okay. Why? I really like his, his early work with... Uh, uh, I really like his earlier work, his... his his solo stuff it just didn't resonate for me. Okay, all right. It, it really didn't. Most underappreciated, like mainstream musician ever. Mm. Ooh, uh, do 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 do. Nash. Who? Graham Nash. Oh, Graham Nash. Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. Yep. Buffalo, Springfield. No, the Birds. Birds. Wow. Oh, Birds. Yeah. Okay. All mm. right. Um, you're, let's say now you're a front man in a big band. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first question, which I'm sure you've been asked a lot, what's the name of your band? Ooh. We'll come back to that. Who's it? No you idea. get to create a super group. Oh, wow. Who's playing drums? Jeez. Ginger Baker. Okay. Who's lead guitar? These are, these are existentially <laughs> ridiculous questions. Hey, listen. I, have, I mean, I have, um, Kenny Burrell. Okay. Who's Kenny Burrell? Jazz guitarist. But okay, so Kenny Burrell's playing it, again. There's got to be chemistry with Ginger Baker yeah, of Kenny Cream. Burrell. Oh, he could play any style. Yeah, Kenny Burrell. Bass guitar, please. Ooh, man, you're a t- yours is tough. It's it's possibly the most stressful question of all this, time. I'm super stressed right now, man, because I I don't want to leave anybody. I have like I have like Ginger Baker on drums. That's secured. Oh man, yeah. Kenny Burrell on lead guitar. Kenny Burrell, yeah. He's, Who's he's bass? Phenomenal. Ooh, uh, Mingus. Who's Mingus? Charles Mingus. Where's what band is Charles Mingus from? Charles Mingus is Charles Mingus, man. He wasn't. Uh, so Mingus was in the um, oh d- debut records. Uh, he he's been in some super jazz groups. Uh, jazz um, man, it, Charles Mingus, like one Charles of the greatest, Mingus. one of the great greatest uh, upright bassists of all time. Who's your piano player? Nat King Cole. Nat, golly, okay, I, yeah. I love Nat King Cole. I love Nat Cole. Love. So I, I, at one time, I was probably the biggest Nat King Cole collector that nobody knew about. I had over 2,700 pieces of Nat King Cole and King Cole Trio uh, records and memorabilia. I had like every 78 the King Cole Trio ever made, every 33, every 45, white label promos, foreign pressings, 27, <laughs> tw- 27 autographs. Um, I, I even had the, the Nat King Cole watch. That wow. came out in 1959. The Jet Magazine, the Small Jet Magazine, mm. um, uh, and uh, talking about Nat undergoing cobalt treatment for lung cancer. Mm. Cali. And uh, yeah, just uh, uh, Nat King Cole. I, I do a different theme song each year, uh, and this year it was "Smile" by Nat King Cole. Beautiful song. Yeah, having yeah. a kid maybe just obviously a lot of things changed, but I needed to pursue happiness, and I yeah. listen to that song on repeat, yeah. which that's in my head like your Susan Hoyle song. Yeah. Um, who are your background vocalists, please? Shirelles. Wow. Okay, but you went with an actual girl group. I meant like you yeah. could have had actually three different singers, but mm-hmm. you went with Shirelles, Shirelles. which 
Um, the ponytails are right behind you. I have a Shirelles piece. Rod Stewart was, is Quick. pissed at you, by the way. He's looking close. at you. I, I'm sorry, Rod. And close close second, Ronettes. Oh, wow. I love the Ronettes. Wow. Yeah. The, uh, do Ron Ron Ronettes, or do you like um, uh, Then He Kissed Me? Ronnie, yeah, like all, uh, I, I love it all. Wow. I love the Ronettes. Yeah, so Shirelles what are your thoughts on Eddie Money's song, Take Me Home Tonight, that featured um, a Ronnie Spector? You know? Just like Ronnie said, be my little baby. Yeah. yeah. Wow. It's, uh, it, it was awesome. Love it. Okay, and you Be are my little baby. Yeah, see, yeah. Love so it. you are lead singer, but in case you're out for the night, who replaces you in your super group? Van Morrison. Van Morrison. Oh, okay. So Van Morrison is your lead singer. Ginger Baker on drums. The Ronettes and the Shirelles playing background vocals. Kenny Burrell. Kenny Burrell. Kenny Burrell. And then uh, bass again. Who's bass? Charles Wingus. With Nat King Cole. On piano. The most eclectic yeah. group of all time. It a lead is. singer from Ireland. A crooner on the piano. Seems What's like the it. group called, please? It's going to have to be a, a jazz group of some sort or like some kind of avant-garde jazz group. I would call it the... Uh, oh. The Space Between Us. Oh, wow, dude. <laughs> okay, and your debut song with The Space Between Us, what's it called? It's called Out There and Then Some. Out There and Then Some. And so... Um, Followed up by Down the Rabbit Hole. Down, see, and look, Still Falling. So he, he's going to text me the rest of the night and be like, wait, if I've, I've, my backup, my background guitar player needs to be X, Y. It stresses people out, dude. I'll do this with, the, with these yeah, musicians. Yeah, they're like, wait, what? And, and some people literally, they're like, I can't answer that. No, I, it's I, so I, tough. I, it uh, is, it's like, I, I, there's so many, I don't want to leave any, I mean, yeah. I, you said guitarist and, and I seriously, I mean, I could have, I could have, chosen Hendrix or Bonham I mean like so many different guitarists you know I mean Paige I mean any of Do you the think greats. Ginger Baker and Van Morrison would complement each other with his drumming style and Van Morrison's other than maybe Van Morrison Caravan and the Last Waltz do you think he would have gotten along with really so here I don't I don't know personality wise if they would have gotten along probably not I don't think because <laughs> no one gets got along with Van Morrison no well I, I'm going back to watching the documentary Beware of Mr. Baker now where he in the '60s took on all the best jazz drummers in the world and and just uh, arguably uh, outdrum the best of the best jazz drummers in the entire world. So I think he could switch to any style, and um, I I think that you know with uh, what was it Graham? He was with a group before uh, before Cream. It was like the Graham Norton. Who was it? Uh, Graham Norton was the TV host. Yeah, not yeah. There was there was some. Uh, there was a, a British musician, redheaded Graham. guy. I, I have the picture. I'm sometimes bad with names, but I have his uh, redheaded uh, British musician. I can't Simply think Red, Mick Hudnall? No, I'm no, joking. no, no. Well, I'm going to look it up. Yeah. It, anyway, I can't think of the, his first band, but um, he really showed some chops there. And then Ginger Baker? Yeah, Ginger Baker, man. Um, hold on. I got to look it up now. Um, oh, Blind Faith. No. Wait. Before. Hawkwind? No, no, no. Cream? Before. This is Graham. Uh, Ginger Cream Baker's Blind, first band. The Graham Bond Organization. The, yes, dude, that is a trivia question right yes. there. Yes, the the Graham Bond Organization. Uh, Jack, alongside bassist Jack Bruce. So, absolutely, yeah, that's what it was. Graham. <laughs> wow. Couldn't think of the name, but that that's also organization spelled with an S. There you go. <laughs> Not even a Z. Seriously. So, again, this is what music guys do. They just get off in these, <coughs> these rabbit holes, and you look up, and in a place like this, there's no natural light. There's no clock. It's a casino. And, and, <laughs> and again, that's the danger of stepping foot in here is that time just kind of stands still. Um, one of the last few questions I'm going to ask, you got a blank check, and you can buy any piece of music memorabilia on earth because it's for sale. What are you buying and why? Wu-Tang's album to resell it. Really? The one, oh, the one that's only one of one? Yeah. Wow, are you even a Wu-Tang fan? Yeah, I love Wu-Tang. Okay. I'd right. play it, and then I'd, I'd uh, download the NFT, and then I'd sell it. And wow. then I'd have the NFT, and that'd be a whole separate collectible. Or I'd just sell the NFT, and then keep the uh, <laughs> and then, and then keep the album. <laughs> and then just keep making NFTs. No, I or, wouldn't. No, you, you get sued that way. Oh, but. never mind. Well, yeah. that shows you how much I know about this stuff. <laughs> um, what, what's the best way to support Ari Crane? How do we find you? I know we're going we're gonna to do some posts on his, for his Instagram and stuff, but... Your Instagram name, it isn't even I Hunt Vinyl? Yeah, I Hunt Vinyl on Instagram. Okay. So you can check me out on I Hunt Vinyl or uh, Ari, A-R-I-C, at H-A.com. And uh, check out our current auction. It's 41177, where you will find the first two ever encapsulated vinyl records offered by Heritage Auctions. 
It is a uh, George Harrison Cloud 9. I got my mind set on you. Yeah, sealed first pressing. That wow. was graded in eight. It's sealed, uh, mint original. So, and then the uh, the other one is the Spencer Davis Group Heavies featuring Stevie Winwood. Wow, so, is that give me some give me some eleven on that? Yeah, with, and it's still sealed, and it was also graded in eight. Wow. Okay. Well, uh, man, I, I I feel like we need to do this. We need to have like a version two of this because it's been. It's been an hour and twenty minutes. No way. That we've been sitting here. Are you serious? I swear to God. What? It's six thirty. It's six thirty. Um, and and Tempest Fugit, man. Yeah, I'll tell you what. This, uh, he, he, you're such a special guy, and I'm so grateful to be your friend. And it's 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 so fun just to watch you talk because I feel like it's it's you know I have my own version of it, but yours is just so much more sophisticated. But uh, a journey from Kansas to Seattle to Alaska, to San Diego, to all over the world with just one mission. And again, he said to him, music is love and it's geography and it's history and it's tying things together. And I think that you've done such a great job of keeping the flame burning so much so to where you have vinyl on your, uh, on your socks. But um, what, what would you like to leave people with? Like what, what would be your suggestion to someone who wants to get into the world of music collecting or, or listening to vinyl or just something that is their version of whatever it is that you love? Yeah, you know, records can be found anywhere. I'm, I'm a huge, I'm a huge advocate of of analog media. So, uh, I would suggest, you know, uh, put down your device, take a little bit of time to plug in a turntable. You can find records for next to nothing at garage sales, estate sales, thrift stores, antique stores, record stores. Support support your local record store. Um, but with that being said, is like I said, my my first uh, my my intro was six bucks. So if I can do it for six bucks, you can do it, Hmm. you know, you can get into it. And, uh, you know, also, um, I, I think that with this new technology that look at encapsulated records, uh, it's going to be massive. Look what I I have a crystal ball, uh, and the crystal ball is looking, look what happened to the comic book industry, the sports card, the non-sports card, the VHS VHS tape. tape. The poster industry now, their uh, CGC is grading and encapsulating posters. Yeah. So look at all these and see what happened to the industry. And, um, you know, the first three have sold online, 6X, 6X, and 20X. Wow. Not just the music, but for sealed records to really uh, get vinyl where it needs to be, um, you know, support your local record store and look into encapsulated records. That's my, uh, my thought. Look at this guy. At I Hunt Vinyl, R-E-C at H-A? Is it? R-E-C at H-A dot com. At H-A dot com. And uh, really just uh, one, of the, one of the most special guys that I know and someone who has a heart for music and, uh, again, proven a heart for love. So thanks for being a part of this today and um, hour and 24 minutes. Thanks for having me, man. It's you, just time's evaporated. It's been awesome. It. You got <laughs> it. Great job. Anytime. Anytime you need me here, brother. Dude.